greetings in Christ's name this evening. And it's, uh, it's truly good to be here. I feel quite comfortable here with this uh, small congregation of believers. We, uh, my wife Sharon and I lived in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and we had a, a small fellowship that I joined when I was 17, maybe 18, and uh, just a small group that met in um, our homes. <clears throat> and eventually it started to grow, and uh, as time passed, we uh, started meeting in community centers, and then we finally uh, had a meeting house, and the number grew to uh, 200 plus, and we decided to do outreach. And so um, we ended up with the outreach group in West Virginia, and we started out with six families. I think there's uh, currently uh, 10 families there, plus a local man that was baptized in May. And uh, so our church is starting to grow. But it was quite a, quite a change for me to go from standing in front of 200-plus people to uh, just six families. It took a little adjustment. Uh, but God is good, and he is building his church. It's just uh, exciting to come into this area. Uh, you all live in a beautiful area here. I don't know if you know that. Do you all know that? Do you think about it very often? You do. You think about it. Good. Good. Uh, you know, there's there's something about just the glory of God in nature that we can become very accustomed to. And I've been out in uh, places like the Rockies, in Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Washington, Oregon. And the locals there are so focused on what they're doing in life I'm not sure they look at snow-capped mountains. Uh, You can become um, unaware of some really amazing things. How much more that is true in our spiritual lives. And so I know that we're all kind of, uh, my wife and I, we've had a lot on the go lately. We've been um, married our youngest daughter off a month and a half ago. We've been to Iowa, just got home this week from Iowa. For wedding out there, a young man and our, and our brotherhood got married uh, to a young girl out there. And it just feels like we're kind of ragged out. And I, I come here and I realize a lot of you have been to Illinois for, an, for a funeral. And maybe you're feeling ragged out too. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but what do you do when you feel just like you're tired? Uh, we draw near to God. And we gather together with the saints. And we gather around God's word. And we experience koinonia. Fellowship around Christ, intimate fellowship around Christ, and we feel a divine energy fill our being and enable us to continue to press into the kingdom even when we're tired, even when we're weary. It's like the prophet of old in the cave, um, he was able to go in the strength of the meat that was provided for him for many days, and we we want to experience the divine power of God in our lives. So, I don't know much about your congregation. Uh, it's the first time we've been in the area. And um, yesterday I told my wife, I said, what is the name of the church we're going to? She said, I don't know. And so she got the Mennonite directory out. How many of you have a Mennonite directory? Yeah, yeah, it's helpful, isn't it? And so she got the Mennonite directory out. Does that, do anyone here, do you know what the name of your church is? Joe? Maranatha? Bible Fellowship. Okay, I forgot all the words, but I knew Maranatha, Maranatha Bible Fellowship. It's, okay, so Maranatha, what does Maranatha mean? 
The Lord, how many times do you find it in the Bible? Just one time. That's right. Just one time. Um, it just goes along with what, what Brother Joe was sharing us this evening about the importance of love. Um, it's at the close of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And does anyone know the other word that goes along with it? It's in, it's in, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I think along about verse 22, as he is giving his, closing his letter. He says, what does he say? Someone tell me, what does he say? If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be Ananthema Maranatha. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right or you're saying it right. Okay, brother? You know, I don't know who's got it right, but it's, you got the idea. You're right, exactly. What does Ananthema mean? It means to be eternally accursed. Mm, that's heavy, isn't it? Maranatha. Our Lord comes. And what Paul is saying is be very sure that your love, your passion is for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus comes again, he is not coming to give his life for the sins of mankind. He is coming as the judge of the whole world. And he will judge in righteous judgment. In that moment, if you have not given your heart completely to the Lord Jesus Christ and your passion completely to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's this awful reality that the only option that Jesus will have in that moment when he returns and you stand before him, and he is your judge. He is no longer your advocate. He is your judge. The only option that he will have is for you to be eternally accursed. It is an incredible motivation that Paul is giving to us. So I like that name for your church. Maranatha. Our Lord comes. May that stir our hearts as we share together around God's word. Uh, tonight, I want to just invite you, uh, Joe, if I remember right, you said share something for families. Is that right? Is that what, I, I was hoping that's what you said. I'm hard hearing, okay? So as I visit with you, brothers and sisters, you say something, I give you an answer. It's clear off the wall. It's because I didn't hear you right, all right? Um, <clears throat> I want to just turn to an old, old passage of Scripture. This comes out of Zechariah. So open your Bibles to Zechariah. This is next to the last book in the Old Testament. And we're going to just look at some things here. Um, but I got a question for you. It seems that there's a very, very real need in our lives to, to have our, our focus constantly drawn back to Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, make sure that you're hearing right. If you have eyes to see, make sure that you're looking at the right thing. It's important what we focus on. And, and we find, and I know you're like me, there's just this constant need to refocus our hearts, to constantly refocus our hearts. And Jesus says to us, um, he says, uh, the, the eye is the light of what? What is it the light of? The body. That's right. And if your eye is focused uh, on uh, the light, the source of all light, who's the source of all light? God is. And he has revealed himself through who? Jesus Christ. 
a Savior. If, you're, if your eye is single, Jesus says, if you're absolutely committed to keeping your heart, your eye, focused on Jesus, what happens to your body? It's full of light. And that is an amazing truth that we could spend all night just talking about, the fact that, that we become a reflector of the life that he is. The source of light is Jesus. But we become a reflection of that light. And this is a theme that goes all through the Bible. Back in Proverbs, what does it say? That man, the spirit of man is a candle of the Lord. And God wants to light that candle. So I have a question for you. Um, How far, I don't know, Joe, if you can see this or not, but we're going to draw a candle here just as soon as we find a marker that writes. And so if we have a candle here, we're going to say this is a candle and uh, this is the flame. How far can you actually see the flame of a candle? This, this passage here in Zechariah is about uh, being able to see the candle and to appreciate the candle. How far can you see a candle? One of you young men, do you know how far you can see a candle away? Someone was to set it, now, this is like on a level plane, like we were out in Iowa where my wife grew up, and out there it's like so level, um, water wouldn't even run off the ground if they didn't put ditches everywhere. It's just so level, it's unreal. But if you set a candle out there in that level terrain, how far could you see it? Because of the curvature of the earth, you could only see it for about 1.5 miles. That's my understanding, all right? You got that? So uh, Jesus talks a lot about light. And what does he say? Uh, he says, I am what? Someone tell me. The light of the light of the world. He said, I'm the light of the world. And in that instant, commentators will tell you, and historians, Josephus, one of them, that would tell you that when Jesus spoke those words, he was at the temple with his disciples. And they had this magnificent candlestick outside the the temple that was so tall they had to put ladders up. And young people were uh, had the responsibility of carrying oil up and filling the cups on top of the candles. And they lit them, and and the reflection of that at night against the temple was like something they said was like one of the wonders of the world, of the ancient world. The whole world knew that was an amazing moment when you lit those candles, those seven candles, and you stood there and you looked at it, reflecting against the temple. It was like, wow. And that's, Josephus says, that's what was happening when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So Jesus says there's some variables about uh, how far you can see light. Is that right? And so his desire is that our families, which is our many churches within the church, that our families are children of light, so that when we come together collectively, we are like a city that is where? In a plain? In a valley? Set on a hill. Thank you. He wants us to be like a city that is set on a hill. Now, how far, if you put a candle on top of a hill, how far can you see it? I don't really know, but I've read uh, statistics that you can see the flicker of a candle at 27 miles on a really dark night if it is set on a hill. Some say 30 miles. 
All I know is that we live in West Virginia, and we can look across the river. We have a 300-acre piece of ground that we lease right around the foothill of what they call Round Top. It's one of the highest mountains in that area. And that's where we graze our cattle. And on the, on the top of that mountain, there is this brass peg, plaque, with a peg down through it. It is a designated spot from which the government, if all communication fails, they can, with light, reflect messages. The whole way up to Mount Parnell in Pennsylvania, where we used to live, that's like over 30 miles away. And they can reflect their messages up there. If, if we get, have all of our electronic communications fried, that is their uh, emergency plan to communicate to other uh, military bases clear up into Indian Town Gap. They can communicate through reflecting messages with light. Light is an amazing thing, and God is the source of all light. And so what we see in God's vision, this is what we, we need more than anything in our hearts, is to come and to be refreshed and renewed in our spirits and understanding what God's vision is for families and for his church. And so we come to this passage of Scripture here, and we're going to just read. We're in Zechariah chapter 4. We're going to read the first couple of verses. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is awakened out of his sleep. And said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, which it, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side of the bowl. And I answered and spake unto the angel that talked unto me, saying, What are these, my Lord? We'll stop there for a minute. I just want to uh, point a couple things out here. One is the context. It's important to know the context. First of all, this is a series of visions that I can't remember. I, I think the Lord gave Zechariah uh, eight or ten visions in which he communicated to him. And so that the people that we want to think about here, there's, there's a lot of people that play into the story, and we don't have time to go back and unpack the whole story. But if we were to turn back a couple pages, uh, we would be in the book of Haggai. And so Haggai was the elder prophet in Jerusalem. Uh, the captives have come back from um, captivity. They've been released from Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed uh, Jerusalem. Now they've been given, have, have permission to go back. And Zechariah, or Haggai is the older prophet. Zechariah is the new prophet. And there's two other people that we're looking at here in this particular passage. One is Zerubbabel. Now, did you ever, you, that's an interesting name, isn't it? We don't use that a lot anymore. I don't know anyone who has that name today. Zerubbabel. But Zerubbabel was the civil leader. He had the responsibility as governor of Jerusalem. And the other man that we see, and if we would back up into chapter 3, which we may do if we have time, we see that Joshua is the priest. He is the one who is responsible for the ecclesiastical duties of the church. Um, and so we have two people that we're looking at primarily in this vision. One is Zerubbabel, who has the responsibilities of caring and overseeing the civil needs, and Joshua, who is taking care of the spiritual needs of the people of God. And they are the ones that are called the anointed ones in this passage of Scripture. And we see this candlestick. There's seven candles in this candlestick. Where do we first run into this candlestick? 
In the tabernacle, thank you. In the tabernacle, we see this candlestick of gold. And it's seven, there are seven, <clears throat> there are seven lamps in this candlestick. And each of them in this vision has like a bowl on the top of them. And they have a flame on them. In this vision that we see here, it is the same candlestick that we later see where? We see it again in Solomon's temple. Now this is the second temple. Uh, we see Jesus looking at this huge candlestick that was outside. Seven candles all on one candlestick. This is a vision of God's church. Bringing our lights together on one stand, on one foundation, Jesus Christ. And in this vision, what we see, this candlestick is again seen where? In Revelation. And who's walking in the midst of the candlestick? Jesus Christ. He's walking in the midst of his church. And many times we're just like Zechariah. Uh, we've We've lost our ability to see the amazing real reality. Our eyes get so focused on the here and now, on the children that we're caring for, on the marriage that we're living out day by day. We get so focused on the things that we can touch and feel and experience that we forget that there's a greater reality than what we are actually experiencing right now. And so, Zechariah is called into a greater reality. You and I are called into a greater reality. And we need spiritual eyes to see that greater reality. Now, it's interesting to note what happens if we go back into Ezra and, and Nehemiah and, and Jeremiah and Lamentations. You get a rounded picture of what's going on here. But this was in 520, 520 years before Christ. Now, if you think back 520 years, where, do you, where does it put us? I don't have a very good mind when it comes to math. But I think it puts us back to about when uh, Columbus discovered America. Maybe not quite that far back. When did Columbus discover America? Anybody know? 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's right. In 1492, I think that puts you back at about 530-some years. So it gives you, am I right, somewhere somewhere in there? And so that's a little bit farther back than what it was between this happening and Christ's first coming as the Messiah. And so just to give you a little bit of idea, it's a long time before Christ comes. But they had a responsibility. And they were sent back. And what was the primary thing that they were called to do? The primary responsibility, the first thing, the first order of business was what? To rebuild the house of God. You make this a priority in your life to build the house of God. And they were given supplies to go back and to build the house of God. And if you read through the prophets, what you find that they did was they came and Zerubbabel overseen the work. They came, and what did they do? The first thing you do when you build something is you put the foundation in. Is that right? You put the foundation in. And when they put the foundation in, they had the foundation in, and they gathered around to celebrate that the foundation was in. And what happened? The old man looked at that foundation, 
The old men that could remember Solomon's temple looked at that foundation. And what happened? They cried. The young people looked at this, at this foundation and they what? They shouted with joy so loud that everybody out around in the neighboring areas heard them. And so you had the old people cry because things were not the way they should have been. There was no comparison with the beauty of this and the beauty of that. It just shouldn't be this way. This isn't the way it's supposed to go in the house of God. We're not supposed to lose ground. We're not supposed to lose the glory of what we had. And we had the young people who were all excited about what's new, what's in. At least the confusion, doesn't it? Their eyes were on this building. And they couldn't see the glory of God. This plays plays out over and over and over in our homes, in our churches. And what happens? What happened then? Anyone know what happened? They left off the building of the temple. And like we always do, we turn inward. And we all, when we get discouraged with the work of God, we just all try to build our own little lives. Really? Is that the way it is? Is that the way it is? Is that the way you are? Uh Uh-huh. Guaranteed. It's the way we all are. And we all have the potential to get discouraged when the going gets hard. When there's conflict, we get discouraged. Mm Mm-hmm. We do. And God has to call us back. Call our hearts back. And he's very gracious in doing this. He calls our hearts back. And he calls us to open our eyes. And to refocus with a single eye. On that source of light. It's the only way. It's the only way forward. And God tells them. We were to back up into Haggai. He says you know you guys have really been putting yourselves into. Your own lives. You took the supplies, the building materials that were for my house, and you build yourself sealed houses. But what has it profited you? You know, you get up and you go to work every day, and you and you work like crazy, and you have lots of clothing, but your heart's still cold, and you have lots of food, but you're still got this gnawing hunger within your heart because I created you with something that tells you there's more to life than living for oneself. And you collect all this money from your wages and you put it into a bag that just has holes in it and it just runs out. Do you ever feel like your bank account has a hole in the bottom of it? Any of you? How many of you ever felt that way? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I've been there. It's like, how can we plug these holes in our our checking account, honey? What's going on here? It just, every time you make a thousand, you get a bill for twelve hundred. It's just the way it is in life. And he says, stop and think about what is your greatest passion in life? Where are you really going here? What do you care most about? Do you care about being a reflector of the life that I am? Do you care about my house? About my people? About the souls of man? See, what the problem is, we get so focused on ourselves and our responsibilities in our own little world, paying the bills, 
that we forget the incredible treasure that we have. I'm just delighted to see these, these children here. We get, we get um, so focused on our little world that we can't be gracious to our children and our spouse and our brothers and sisters. There's no oil in our lamp. Is there a problem if there's not oil in our lamp? Jesus says you need to have oil in your lamp. Right here. And he says in the parable of ten virgins, you need some reserve. Because sometimes things get really ugly. (laughs) Sometimes things really hurt in life. Things can get really difficult. And so you need some reserve. Where does that come from? What Jesus is telling them here is that here's reality, okay? So what we have is we have this amazing, uh, I can't really draw it. Okay, so this is an olive tree. You got that? It's an olive tree. And if you follow this through, I'm just going to give you a couple of verses here to look at. We're, we're going to back up just a little bit. It's called, okay, so to, to understand this, this, this vision, we've got the branch, and then we have the branches. You got that? Okay? So if we back up into um, chapter 3, verse 8, when I get to it, say it with me, okay? Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant together, the branch. And you see how that is all in capital letters right there? And I can take you to other places in Scripture. In fact, let's just real quickly just flip the page to chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6 of Zechariah and verse 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Let's do better than that. The branch. Okay, and so we have this concept of this olive tree. And then we have, before this olive tree, we have this bowl. And then we have these two branches. Okay? And so these branches are alive. They're, they're green, right? And they got berries on them. Here, let's do it this way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a blue olive, but we've got blue olives on here. Well, we were going to have blue olives on here. We're just going to have black leaves and black olives, but you get the idea. You got the idea? Those are leaves and berries, olive berries. Okay, it's a fruitful vine. Why is it fruitful? Why are these branches fruitful? What does it have to do with? It's connected to the living light, the source of life. The connection is there. Now, one of these stands for, who, who are the two branches? The two anointed ones? One of them stands for, who? Do I, what did I say? Joshua? And he is the high priest. And the other one stands for, everyone want to say it? Zerubbabel. Thank you. I think you're saying it better than I did. Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is what? He's the governor. He's the civil leader. So you think about this in your home. The father is what in his home? He's the high priest. Is that right? Uh Uh-huh. That's right. You are the high priest of your home. And the mother's basic responsibilities, there is a difference between what who mom's responsibilities and dad's responsibilities. And mom's responsibilities, she is the virtuous woman who oversees the civil responsibilities in the home to keep 
the home a civil place, a great place of honor, a great place of responsibility. The one who rocks the cradle does what? Rules the world. In other words, shapes the direction of society. Tremendous place of responsibility. No less important than the man who stands as a high priest. Two very important responsibilities that God has ordained in the home. What is the most important thing about being able to fulfill that responsibility? If we read down through this passage, and we don't, won't have time to look at every verse in detail, but if you, if you analyze it carefully, what is, God says, God says through this vision, you know, I've provided a place for you to walk. And I'm going to give you the strength to walk in it. And what is the most important thing about being able to have the wisdom and the strength to walk in the place that God has appointed for us? What is it? Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that is what Joshua and Zerubbabel, did I say it right, brother? That, okay, just forgive me. I'm not very well educated, all right? But I love God's word because it's amazing. It reveals God to his people. And what it reveals to us is that we cannot be good moms, we cannot be good dads, we cannot bring the connectedness that we experience and the power that we experience in our lives, in our homes, to the church setting if it's not in our homes. It has to be happening in our homes. Our children have to see that in our lives, that we love and care about Christ and his kingdom more than we care about anything else. And I think this is a challenge that we all face Because we have to be responsible people in caring for our families and providing for our families. So the challenge that we all face is, as Brother Joe read tonight, loving God the way that we have been loved. Giving our passion to God. And so what we have is we have this image here. And what we want to recognize is that there is also in this this vision, there is, uh, what's what's the thing that I've not talked about yet? Can someone tell me? What else do we see that we haven't talked about yet? There's oil, and this oil is coming out of these branches, out of the berries, the fruit of these branches, into this golden bowl. And then how does it get over into the lamps? Pipes, golden pipes, channels. And so we recognize that the oil is the grace of God that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. So we recognize God is the source, the only source of true spiritual oil. But he wants it to be squeezed out of our lives into a reserve. Well, there's a reserve that can constantly be flowing through channels. You know the song Channels Only, Blessed Master? I love that song. And when I sing that song, I always think about this vision that God so graciously gave to Zechariah and gave to us today through his, his word. He wants us to be channels. Our children are channels. We want the grace of God to flow through us to them and through them to a lost and dying world. Light is such an incredible concept throughout all of Scripture. What does, I think it's in Isaiah, it says that uh, the people were 
in darkness and no, the, earth, the world was in darkness and gross darkness covered the people. But a light has sprung up among them. And that light is Jesus Christ. He's given us this privilege, like the stars of the sky, to reflect the light that he is. And how does that happen? How does that happen in your life and my life? It comes to us through uh, the press of life. Hmm. Don't like it, do we? But do you feel pressure sometimes in life? Anyone here feel pressure in the responsibilities that God has given you? Yeah, we do, don't we? <laughs> We're not super people. We're not. We feel pressure. We feel pressure from the world. We feel pressure from our boss if you work for somebody to, to do a good job and to perform. There's just pressure all around us. And the um, reality is, is that most of us spend a lot of time and energy trying to relieve ourselves of that pressure. Just the way it is. We look for a way out of the pressure. And one of the things that really changed in my life as a young father is when I stopped trying to relieve myself of the pressure and started to embrace it. And so the Christian life that was set forth by Jesus looks like this, is that we always have uh, two options. Option A is the broad road, the easy path. Option B is the narrow road. It's straight and it's difficult and it's set about by many obstacles. If you analyze what Jesus is meaning by the straight and the narrow. Jesus in his life, always when he, when he had the two options set before him, which we continually do, he always took the hard way. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And he ended up at the end of his life, he ended up in a place called what? On his knees praying with disciples that couldn't even stay awake and watch with him. Where was he at? Gethsemane. You know what Gethsemane means? Gethsemane means the olive press. We have a friend over there right now. Christian Aid Ministries. She sends update letters. And when it's time today in Israel, olives are still a very vital part of the economy and the way of life for the local Jewish people. She sent some pictures uh, recently, emailed them to us of her and some friends picking olives and taking them to the olive press. And I just love that thought of Jesus being in the olive press as no man has ever been before. We took our, our little church family from West Virginia down to the Bible Museum here some months ago in Washington, D.C., and we learned there that Jesus, this branch that sprung up out of the root of Jesse, the source of life for us, he was from where? He was born in Bethlehem, but he was from where? A place called Nazareth. What does Nazareth mean? Nazareth means a branch. How coincidental is that? And the reason it was called a branch was because it was a little outreach 
community started by some people in Bethlehem who thought there ought to be a town over here at Nazareth. And so they went down there and they started an outreach community. And things just never went very well. And so the common saying was, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? It's like living in West Virginia. For those of you who live in Virginia, you're far enough south of us, maybe you don't make the jokes about us that everybody north of us does. But it was that idea, you know what I'm saying, where you looked at Nazareth like, what good can come out of Nazareth? It was like, people asked me, what in the world do you want to go to West Virginia for? Don't you know the geese fly upside down across West Virginia? They don't actually. But those are the kind of things that people threw at us when, we, when they found out we were going to West Virginia. That's the way it was coming from Nazareth. But it means the branch. It was an offshoot of Bethlehem. But Jesus finds himself bearing that pressure all through his life. They, they said he was, he was uh, born out of unfaithfulness. He had a lot, of, a lot of pressure. But the greatest pressure of all was when he was in Gethsemane. He was in the very olive press of life. Where it was my will or God's will. Which is it going to be? And he struggled in that olive press. And the interesting thing is, is, is they shared with us that, there's, that olives go through three pressings. It's not coincidental that all of this lines up so incredibly with the realities of our salvation. But the olive oil, olives go through three pressings today yet, always have, historically. And the first pressing is the virgin olive oil. And that is used in anointing. That is used in medical needs. If you have wounds, you find a man lying along the side of the road that's been robbed and beat up and slashed with knives, what do you do? You pour in wine to disinfect it. You pour in oil to bring healing, softness to the wounds so that it can heal. So your first pressing is the, the virgin olive oil for anointing and for healing. Interesting, it's in this order. And second in the pressing, it's not quite as clear, and it's used for food. Salad dressing, frying up your breakfast eggs, your ham. Well, if you're a Jew, it wouldn't do that. But you get the idea, it's food. They used it to make food. And last but not least, in the final, the third pressing, by now the, the outer skins are crushed and bruised, and the oil has a reddish bronze color to it. And it is used to, anyone want to make guess? To fill the lamps. Make light. They said it almost looks like blood and water mixed together. And I don't know why it is, but we struggle with the press, don't we? In our families, we struggle with the press. We don't feel respected in our home by our spouse or cared or loved for by our spouse. or We don't feel uh, loved or cared for by the church. And we feel the press. And what Jesus is teaching us is, look, it's in the press of life. It's in the press of life that I can do my work of bringing out of you the grace of God. It's in the press of life that I can bring my spirit out of you. The fruit of my spirit. 
to where you can be healing and you can be spiritual food and you can be light to a lost world. Never forget the words of Jesus. Prophecies concerning Jesus. He will baptize you with fire. Now, interestingly, salt and fire are used interchangeably. And Jesus says every sacrifice is what? Salted. Is that right? And so what happens with salt? Uh, It preserves. It sanctifies. And it has uh, a good flavor for the world. As they see you, who tastes it? It's the world that tastes it. And if your salt loses its saltiness, it was a very real reality in that day that if you contaminated, most of the salt in that day came from the Dead Sea area, and if you contaminated it, it would lose its taste. It would get an off taste to it, no longer be desirable. And what good is your life if you don't have the taste of salt? How does that come out in our lives? Well, if we're salted with, with, with salt and fire for the purpose of sanctifying us, it's the press of life that burns out of us the self-centeredness, the self-focus, and helps us to sanctify our families to keep a focus on Jesus. And I remember our son, Micah, married a girl from Iowa, where my wife came from, and he moved out there. And Micah was one of those sensitive boys that just, um, maybe you could say he was a bit easily offended or a little difficult to communicate to about some things. He was just, just he like kept things inward, you know, inside. And as a father, I would sit down with him and I would talk with him. And he would just, you know, it just like it took him a long time to open up his heart and talk to you. And it just, it just felt like you could never get real close to him. But he got a wonderful wife and he was seeking to follow the Lord. Had a, had a lot of concerns for him in some ways, but he was seeking to follow the Lord. And, um, they were wanting children, and the Lord withheld children from them. And then he found out that she had a, um, some cancer in one of her ovaries and went through an operation, and they were told that maybe we never have children. And then they called with the exciting news that they were expecting a little baby, and we were so happy for them. And along about five and a half months, I believe it was, if I remember right, into the Carrying this little child, they called us and said uh, they lost a heartbeat. And so, on our living room wall, there's a picture of our son and our daughter-in-law holding this little boy, just, just a wee little boy. And we stood by the graveside with them and just wept. It's the press of life. It's the being baptized with fire. It's the being salted with salt that Jesus promised to his people. And why do we push against it? Do we really want to be a a people that are polished or would rather be comfortable in life? 
It's a question each of you have to answer. Our tendency is to take the easy road, to turn life to being about me, about building my little safe place, my little place where I I live and I just don't ruffle anybody's feathers and I just keep uh, to myself. And what Jesus is calling us to is to be a people that uh, embrace the baptism of fire, the salting of salt, because we know it's going to do a good work in us and breaking us down, breaking the self-centeredness down in our lives and helping us to be a people who, as Joe read there, the heart of John was that we would love one another with an agape love, a love where we would lay down our lives one for another for the glory of God with no thought of anything returning to us. Just one thing that we have and one passion we have and that God is glorified. God wants us to be channels of grace. He wants us to be channels of mercy, channels of truth to our sons and our daughters and to our brothers and our sisters. And I've, I've shared a lot of uh, messages over the years in a lot of churches. I've spoken um, sometimes Monday night through Sunday night, every night, Sunday morning. I remember going to churches where there was big churches, lots of families. And families, uh, they want answers. How do we do this? How do we raise a family? How can I raise a family that's as, as wonderful as Brother Floyd's family? How can I do that? I see Brother Joe raising a, a wonderful, godly family. How can I raise my family like that? That is the cry of parents' hearts. And I can preach for a whole week, and at the end of that week, moms and dads are wringing their hands, and they're like, okay. I hear what you're saying, but I still don't see the way forward. I'm here to say that the way forward is to ask Jesus to open our eyes and and, and to give us a new vision of the reality of who he is and what it means to live in reality. Reality. What does it mean to live in reality? I like your church. Your clock is behind me. Oh, there's one too. Someone want to take that down for me? I want to just share a few things here. Yeah, I don't know what time you normally close here. Okay. We're going to, I know we're all tired. And I'm going to try to be respectful here. Okay. So quickly, let's look at a couple more things in this passage of scripture that just in, in my heart, it, it, it speaks to me. It speaks to me of the importance of our families being Christ-centered families. Verse 6. Then he answered, we're in Zechariah chapter 4 and we're ready for verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Everyone together, loud, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And what I gather from that verse, and there's many things we don't have time to discuss here tonight. This could be a message all in itself. Not by might, not by power. In other words, you don't have what it takes to do it. 
You can't build God's house. You can't do it. There's only one way to do it. There's only one way it's possible. How is it that it's possible? By the Spirit of God. By that divine influence of God, that divine energy that comes from God and God alone. What God is saying to these people is, you know, all I really wanted, the building the house is not the main thing. What I want is your obedience. I asked you to make me the priority of your life, the number one love of your heart. I just simply want you to obey me. Because if you're going to be loyal to me, the way you demonstrate loyalty to God is you obey God. You do what he asks you to do. And what does he ask us to do? He's asked us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, to give ourselves our entire passion to him and to no one else. We can't serve two masters. So just obey me. And in obeying me, you will find this flow of grace coming to you. In the press of life, we don't run from the press of life. We recognize that the press of life is what is going to sanctify our passion and our loyalty to God. Does that make sense to us? Mm-hmm. Just me. I'm learning this, okay? With you, I'm learning this. I want to learn it in a deeper, fuller way in my own life. But he says you can't do it. It will not happen with your own intellect. And so many times, I don't know, have you noticed that we run into a problem? It doesn't matter if it's in our home, uh, in raising the children, disciplining the children. We run into a problem, run into a conflict at home, or if it's on the job, or if it's in the church. It doesn't matter where it's at. Our instinct is first and foremost to try to find solutions intellectually. Have you noticed that? You work through it in your mind. You try to think through it. Okay, here's option one, here's option two, here's option three as I see it. And the other person says, well, I think this is the only option. And next thing you know, we have a recipe for conflict in our churches, in our homes, in our workplaces. It's amazing where you can find conflict. When we're all together in the olive press, one of the things that you find is absent. You think about koinonia, the last part of your church name. Fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia. First and foremost, what koinonia means. First definition of koinonia is absence of conflict. <laughs> I like that. And so in our marriages and in our homes, when you have conflict, and it will, it will try to come in. We all, we all experience this. Conflict will try to come into you. I mean, you asked my wife on the way here. My wife grew up in the flat plains of Iowa. Everything is one mile that way, one mile that way. Everything is like, you know, you, there, you, I, I got lost so many times in Iowa. There's nothing to look at and say, oh, there's a mountain range, and that's to the west of me. And if I just keep that in view, I can find my, my way anywhere I want to go. Out there, everything is flat. Soybeans, corn, corn, soybeans. And straight roads. And she married a guy from back in the east who loves windy roads that wind through the mountain valleys. And I like the grace extension on the speed limit. 
She does not. And so there's always this a possibility of conflict in our travels. Unless we're in Iowa, then things go very smoothly. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is there conflict? What has to do with respect and the love that we exercise towards one another? In our close fellowship, the koinonia that God has gifted us with as a couple. And so we find that tension in all of our relationships. And we come back to what God has given to us is this gift of koinonia. And the, the, the press, the olive press of life, if we are connected to Christ in our, in our greatest ambition is to protect that connectedness that we have in Christ through our loyalty and our devoted, our single eye for Christ. If our greatest passion is to protect that, there's never a lack of oil in our hearts, in our lives, to work through the conflicts that arise. It's there. It's not from us. The source of that oil is God. It's the Holy Spirit. He's the giver of the oil, and he is delighted to give it to us. He wants it to be flowing freely through us to our sons and our daughters and to our spouses. We are in um, verse 7. Who art thou, O great mountain? I love this passage because it says, look, God is a God who moves mountains. And if you have faith in God, it's not your faith that a mountain can be moved that moves. It's your faith in a faithful God who has the power to move mountains. And so no matter what you face, the mountain they faced in this day was that the people were focused on themselves rather than doing God's work. A tendency we all have. Whatever the mountain is that you face, Place your faith in the God who moves mountains. And he can move your mountain. It doesn't mean that he will actually cast it into the sea. It may be that he will give you the strength to climb it and to enjoy the journey up the mountain. He says it will become as a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, grace, grace unto it. And what he is promising us is that whatever the press is in your family situation right now, it's temporary. Okay? So two things. How long does it take to raise a family? Joe, you told me you still have, your youngest is six? Five. And you've already got grandchildren. How long does it take for you to become a grandpa? Just can't believe how, how soon you got there, can you? I mean, you look way too young to be a grandpa. Are you sure you're a grandpa? Seriously, Joe. Well, that would be great. <laughs> okay, I believe you. I hope to meet him. All right? But you do look way too young to be a grandpa. I can't believe you're a grandpa. But I take your word for it. It just happens really quick. You older brothers, is that right? It really happens quick. And we recently had our youngest daughter married. We were blessed with five children, five living children. I can't believe how quick we are empty nesters. It's just, it's hard for me to believe. And I look back over raising our children. There were times when the pressure was on. It's like the paycheck just doesn't reach. There was stress. But I look back over the whole experience and I say, grace, grace. You put the capstone, the finishing touches on. Zerubbabel is going to put the finishing touches on. He laid the foundation. He's going to put the finishing touches on. And when he does it, he's going to say, you know what? 
This was not because I was somehow smart. This was not because I was able to work hard. It wasn't because of might. It wasn't because of power. There's only one person who gets the credit for this reality that my children are all raised. They're married. They're seeking to serve the Lord. There's only one person who gets the credit for that. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the work of the Holy Spirit. No credit for me. Grace, grace. It's his grace. He's the source of all grace, a true vine. We want to be connected to that true vine. We echo those words. It's all of grace. And we, we go on, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. Thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. Verse 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. With those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. And what that is speaking to us is that God's anointed ones, those that God places in this, in this uh, position of responsibility, it's a privileged position, and that God calls them to hold the plumb line. What is the plumb line? All through Scripture, the plumb line is the word of the Lord. That's the plumb line. And you hold that plumb line. How many of you are in construction work? So let me see a show of hands. Joe, you're in construction work. How do you know that? Anyone else here? Okay. You know what a plumb line is? Okay. That's interesting because uh, most young fellows that are in construction have no clue what a plumb line is. Back when I started, we had these transits that we would hang a plumb line under it and set it on the corner of a, of a footer, make a corner mark, and then we would shoot a 90-degree angle. Shoot a, shoot a line down the footer, turn it 90 degrees. That's how we got our building square back in the day, uh, along with making them level. But a plumb line, you can put a plumb line against any wall, and we would do that. The masons would be laying up a block wall. We would bring a plumb line over and hold it up there and measure the distance, top and bottom, make sure that we were level on a 12-foot wall. It would tell you how far out you are. And Zerubbabel holds that plumb line. We're going to build it's a responsibility of our fathers, our ministry, to hold the plumb line, the measuring stick. And we step up to it and say, you know what? I'm not honoring God here in my life. My children, I want to bring them to the plumb line. They can see where their lives are, how it lines up with God. They might see their need of God's grace, God's, their need of God's forgiveness in their lives. It's a responsibility that we have. And how do we do that? Well, it says here that he built upon the foundation that God had provided. That's how we do that. God laid the stone. We're not going to take a lot of time here on this. But we have, um, what does, what does uh, truth mean? Equals what? If you were to say truth is this, what would you say it is? God lays the foundation. So, truth is the truest reality. I, like, I just like that definition, all right? So just hang on to that. Truth is the truest reality. And so what we see is Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you were uh, a builder in our area, sometimes we do what we call a monolithic slab. 
And I'm not very good at drawing, but you get the idea where you pour a cup. We just built a, a, a 50 by 80 the other month on a monolithic slab where we, we took and we, the, the foundation is like a concrete slab full of rebar, 50 feet by 80 feet. It encompasses the entire building. And so when you have a monolithic slab, what do you do? You build your building within the parameters of that monolithic slab. It is like the total foundation, the total footer for what you build on. And that's the picture that we see throughout Scripture, is that you then build within the lines that are predetermined by the truest reality, the truest measurements that you can possibly get. And Paul says that we all are to take heed how we build. And we backed up into Zechariah chapter 3. God says, I have laid the foundation stone. And I have engraved in words in that foundation stone. That's his commandments that he has engraved in the foundation. What he's saying is, look, the truest reality is my character. It's who I am as God. This is me. This is who I am. It's connected to my character as God. And if you build your life and take heed how you build, and you build within the parameters that I have established for you, that's the picture that we get in Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 4. If we do that, then God's blessing will be with us, and we will build for his glory. And we will be a reflection of the light and the glory of God's character. We'll just drop down and read the rest, the balance of this passage. Um, the, the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord, he says in verse 10, go to and fro throughout the whole earth. He's simply saying, I am there, I see what's happening, and I find delight in the work. That's, a, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Uh, so many times we look at ourselves and we look at our failures and our, you know, I, I do that sometimes. I, I look back over um, my wife and I have been married for 38 years. It'll be 39 years on November 10. And I just asked her recently, I said, you know, I really want to do something for our 40th anniversary. We had wanted to do something for our anniversary for a long time. I, I told her, the 25th anniversary, we want to go to Alaska. I want to see Alaska. Well, we got busy in ministry, and life just seemed to be a press, an olive press. And so we just scrapped that. And so I asked her recently, I said, we need to start planning for our 40th anniversary. Um, how about we go to Florida? She said, Florida? Who wants to go to Florida? I said, well, you tell me what you want to do for our 40th anniversary. You know what she told me? She said, I want to put a chain link fence around our property, and I want to put a sign at the door, at the gate, that says, um, not available for one week. <laughs> I took it as an incredible compliment. She actually wants to spend a week inside of a chain link fence with me. <laughs> I like that. But you know, what, what? my point was this. <clears throat> I went down a rabbit trail, okay? <clears throat> but my point was this. Is that God says, I delight in you. Can you receive that? Sometimes we get hard on ourselves. We look at the mistakes we've made. And we've all made them. We, all of us make them. And we, we look back over our life and we get all caught up. What did I say? 
we tend to come back around to ourselves, right? And either we come back around and we live out of our egos and we're building our own little safe place here in this world, fighting our own way through. We're self-made people. Or we start focusing on all of our failures in life. And what are we doing? We're still making about us. And God wants to lift us up out of that and say, you know what? I know you made a lot of mistakes in life. But I'm delighting in you. I'm delighting in your family. I see what you're doing. I don't despise the day of small things. Uh, the changing of the diapers is, is, is incredibly important. That's not just a little thing. That's a really big thing. Uh, Jesus said, you know, giving somebody a cup of cold water. How many of your moms ever gave your children a cup of cold water? Yeah, you do that, right? Did you think about that? Jesus says that you're not going to lose your reward for doing that. I, I delight in them little things that you do. You come up along beside a young man at church and you put your arm around his shoulder and say, how's it going, David? Haven't talked to you for a while. I did that recently. Um, we were at a wedding and there was a young man there from another district and he had courted for a short time and something didn't work out. And I seen him, he was uh, helping there at the wedding, and I seen him go into the room where they had some gifts for those who helped serve. And I walked in behind him, I put my arm around his shoulder, and I said, uh, how's it going? How's it going? And he turned and looked at me. He said, John, I'm struggling with discouragement. And we shared a little bit. We talked about Jesus. We talked about his faithfulness. We talked about the fact that he's bigger than the problems. Our mountains, it seems so very tall, we'll never get over them. No problem for God. Our problem is many times that we have a small God and big problems. We need to start looking at a big God who has the resources to take care of any problem. And we prayed together, and there was a light came back in his eye if we committed the situation to God. A cup of cold water doesn't necessarily mean a physical cup of cold water. It can just be a word of encouragement. And I don't know why it is, but sometimes in our homes, it's the hardest place to offer that word of encouragement to our children, to our spouse. So if you don't take anything else out of the, the message tonight, uh, take this out of it. That God wants you to be, he has you in the olive press, whatever that is, for a reason. Don't try to get out of it. Got it? The olive press is doing good things to you. The salt, the baptism of fire is doing a good thing in your heart. Don't draw back from it. The Lord takes no pleasure in those who draw back, who want an easy life. There's a cost to discipleship. You're all in ministry. Don't back down from it. Don't back down from the sacrifice it calls from you. It's going to cost you sleep. There's times that you're going to suffer emotionally. You're going to feel unappreciated. It all, it's all part of it. Embrace it. Move towards the pain. It's doing a good thing in you. But in the pain, make sure that you stay connected to Christ. He is your only hope. He's your only source of life. Tend to the connection. Paul says it's, it's an important thing Do you recognize. It's a gift, an incredible gift that you've been connected to the vine. Don't take it lightly. 
You can be cast aside if you don't appreciate it and press in. Take it seriously. And never forget that the grace of God came to you and he wants it to flow through you. He doesn't just give it to you for you to consume it upon yourself. He wants you to be a source of grace, anointing oil to your family. And the way we do that is through our actions and our words. We speak words of grace to our children. We speak words of grace to our spouses. And I'll bring this service to a close so you all can go home and get some much-needed sleep. So thank you. Thank you for bearing with me. I want to close with verse 14. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Do you know where you're standing? Do you know where you're standing? In Christ, you stand by the Lord of the whole earth. If you go back to chapter 3, what you find is that Joshua, in his state of discouragement, it tells you in verse 1 of chapter 3 that Joshua was there, he was standing there, and he had some rags on. Have we all been there? Yeah. When we have our own righteousness, when you're thinking about your own righteousness and you're wondering why people don't recognize the virtues that you have and the accomplishments that you've achieved, you're clothed in rags. And you know what it says there in verse 1? It says that Satan was right there at his right hand, right next to him. And what does God do? He does a work. He says, look, it's not about you. It's about me. Get them rags off. Let me clothe you. And what do we find Joshua does? When you let God close you with his righteousness and make it about him and not about you, you're standing at the right hand, right next to the Lord of the whole earth. And that is where we want to be. It is only as we stand there connected to the Lord of the whole earth that we find strength within our hearts to be men and women of grace and truth where God can allow his truth and his grace to flow through us to be a blessing upon those about us. So the call of Zechariah's vision to us tonight is to rise up, to get our eyes on Jesus, the bright and morning star, to allow him to cleanse our hearts that we might be a more perfect reflection of the light that he is. Let's stand for prayer.